You're listening to Paris Talks Marketing. My goal with this podcast is to dig deeper into digital marketing success than any other marketing podcast out there, to reveal the growth marketing strategies and tactics that are working today, empowering growth at amazing companies and organizations. Keep listening as I interview founders, CEOs, and marketing leaders from all around the world, primarily from companies in the tech and software as a service industries. Now, on with the episode. Hi, everyone. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Pranjali Lahari, and she is the AVP of Marketing at Upside LMS. So, Pranjali, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Paris, and thank you so much for uh, getting the pronunciation right. It's, uh, I really appreciate that. Thank you. My pleasure. That, that's very important for me. And uh, thank you for coaching me up a little bit right before the show. Can you start us off with a short introduction about yourself and your current company? Absolutely. So, you know, guys, just to give some context to my area of work, um, as Paris said, I head the marketing function at Upside LMS. Now, Upside LMS is a leading learn tech company. But I do want to tell you this. Um, I joined this company in 2010. And uh, a time when e-learning was, while it was fairly known, the acceptance mm-hmm. and the adoption of e-learning was relatively less. And it was also a time when the newer channels of digital marketing, like uh, social media, the mobile first approach, they were just kind of just taking off. So between then and now, there's so much, lo- there's so much that has evolved and changed. And my job in the last one decade has really been to stay in sync with what was happening in the industry, ensuring that I was maintaining that B2B marketing flavor uh, and keeping in uh, keeping pace with all of the changing trends and technologies. So all in all, it has been one uh, decade full of learning, evolving and experimenting. And which is where I find my understanding of consumer psychology, neuroscience, a bit of that uh, to be very, very helpful. And on the personal front, guys, uh, if I have to say uh, something about myself, I'm a mom to a seven-year-old boy. He keeps me on my toes through the day. Um, I'm a spirit junkie. Um, I am um, an avid reader. You will find everything from quantum physics to conscious parenting in my Kindle at any point in time. And um, I also like freezing frames. So you'll find me with uh, my trusty DSLR Canon that I keep carrying around. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Wonderful. Well, I don't know. We're not going to have time to to go into all those great areas, but I think what I would like to discuss with you is we're gonna we're gonna do something a little bit different than we normally do on the show because of your passion around consumer psychology. We had kicked around a couple of ideas before the show, and you have done a lot of research, especially into the areas of how consumer behavior has changed in this past year or so during the pandemic. And we're going to talk about that today. Is that okay with you? Absolutely. Let's do this. Great. Okay. So the first question here is, maybe it's an obvious one, but do you think consumer behavior has changed post-COVID and how? Yeah. Yeah. Listen, it's a very valid question. Okay. And, um, but before we go into addressing the question, I want to start off with, um, putting what consumer behavior really is, because I believe once you have a better understanding of the terms, the rest really just falls in place. Right, so I'm just gonna quickly give you a dope on what behavior is and its genesis. So our current thoughts and our feelings, uh, they come from our past memories and experiences, right? So things that have happened in our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all of that really forms your experiences and memories. 
And because we think and feel in a certain way, uh, whether we are conscious of it or not, we begin to create an attitude. And a series of such attitudes when put together, they start creating a belief. Now belief here is the key because that's more long-term and that's embedded deeply in your subconscious mind, right? And uh, when you string such beliefs together, they start dictating the behaviors that we exhibit and the choices that we make. So if you've understood what I'm saying so far, to bring about a consumer change or a customer change, we have to go deep down into the belief level. And companies that have tried to attempt to bring about any kind of behavioral change in the past by ignoring or challenging consumer beliefs have been fighting an uphill battle. So case in point example would be, if you remember when PepsiCo decided to expand its portfolio of uh, fun for you foods like Pepsi, uh, Lay's, Doritos, with good for you foods like Tropicana, Quaker Oats, there was a resistance, not just from the consumers, but also from the company's stakeholders. So that's how tricky consumer behavior is. Now, interestingly, COVID-19 has forced many consumers to change their behaviors rapidly and at scale. And the key driver in this case has been fear. Now, we all have been going through this pandemic together. So we know that there's been a fear of the uncertainty, the fear of contracting the disease, the fear of unemployment, and also the fear of unavailability of resources, right? So in other words, consumers who would have otherwise stubbornly stuck to their old beliefs and habits, uh, resulting into very slow adoption, if any at all, have adopted new behaviors rather easily. So Paris, to address your question, yes, there has been some consumer change and it has been a rather um, fast and a rapid change that we have seen. Right now, let's get to the second part of the question. How has this changed or what are the behavioral changes that we are noticing? Now, according to a recent research by, by McKinsey, uh, they observed that there is a variance in how the consumer sentiment and behavior has actually changed across the countries that have been affected by the pandemic. Right now, even with all this variance, there still are some commonalities in the behavioral change. And in context of our discussion today, there are three that I would like to call out. The first one, and which is something that we are all aware of, is the biggest shift to digital. Now, for the good part of the last one year, we've all been uh, working from home. We have been uh, doing everything online mostly because of the imposed lockdown, the isolation, and the low out-of-home engagement that happened because of it. And this online really became as a need of the hour because we had to finally go and get our daily essentials, medicines, uh, even entertainment and even working, learning, everything happened within the four walls of our house through a virtual kind of a setup. And even though in some countries and regions, as you see, where lockdowns have now been uh, lifted or they have been relaxed, people continue to engage in digitally enabled interactions because it has become a default expectation, right? Mm -hmm. So that's number one, which is the shift to digital. Now linked to the shift to digital is the second kind of behavioral change that we are noticing, which is the rise of the self-service or do-it-yourself culture, right? Now we already know that digital has been putting the power back in the consumer's hand. So today when we go out shopping, we don't just have the information ready with regards to the service or the product that we are planning to purchase, but we also desire to have the agency so that we have a better control of our experience. Uh, and if you just go back into human evolution, it really was a clear-cut way. If we were in control of our environment, we had a far better chance of survival. And that's really a primitive brain uh, kicking into action and telling us to get that agency back into our own hands. And so this is what has also led to a second behavioral change, as I said, which is the rise of the self-service culture, where we like mm -hmm. to not just uh, have the information, but go ahead and do the checkouts. So that is the second one. 
The third one is value-based purchasing. And um, if you go back to the times, so still we are in the times somehow, uh, another key theme that we saw was the cash situation, not just for businesses, but also for individuals. Now for most businesses, it was about having deferred payments or even increased client churn rate. You know, for individuals, uh, for us, it was about the salary cuts. It was about the overall uh, uh, layoffs that were happening that were putting a strain on the cash inflow and hence the outflow. So what were we left with? We were left with a choice to mindfully find the right product or the service that fitted the bill, but also saw if we could save something of it, which meant we were putting value first and then the brand later. So essentially what this led to was a value-based purchasing and oftentimes leading to shock to loyalty too, which means people were ready to leave the brand that they were loyal to for a long time, just because they put the value first. So these, in my opinion, have been the three key changes. That's, that's fascinating. So just to recap, we have the shift to digital and I think everyone listening can really validate that. They're experiencing it. The second is to, to take a more hands-on do-it-yourself approach. And when you said wanting, wanting to initiate the checkout, that really means um, in a way taking, taking more control over your purchase decisions. Um, and then the third is value, value-based bidding. And that was very, that's a very interesting point, that last point, because I just recently listened to a fantastic webinar from a company called ProfitWell. And they, they highlighted what is a pretty major shift in SaaS software as a service pricing models from feature-driven to value-based pricing. And I think that is in response to the trend that you pointed out among consumers, which is in, in these moments when maybe money gets tighter, uh, there's, there's a more emphasis on where am I getting value? And if I have to make some cuts, I have to first identify where am I going to get value and which which of these products or services I, I'm going to keep. And in that environment, then the power of branding maybe gets a little weaker. Maybe you're willing to say goodbye to some brands that you've been with for years. If they can't prove to you in those moments, they can still deliver the value that someone else might be now delivering. So I guess switching, uh, the cost of switching is, uh, or brand, brand loyalty also, I guess, has, has gone down as a result. And now let's transition that into, into marketing. So as given what you've just described as these changes, and I think relatively permanent changes to consumer behavior, as a marketer now, how would you approach strategic changes and what has this led to for marketing? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very valid question. It's a good question after you've understood that there is some kind of consumer change that's happening. But also to the point that you said, Paris, where there is a cost of switching and even brand loyalty is now at stake. I just want to pinpoint to something in psychology called as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, now I encourage people to go out and look it up. It's essentially a triangle uh, and it has different layers. And what it really says is that typically as humans, you'll want to move up the hierarchy, meaning that after you have the first level of your needs met, only then will you progress to the next level. And uh, really where we are coming to even during the pandemic is because I mentioned there was a fear. There is a real fear about the pandemic. Uh, so everything just kicked back in us, right? We were first ensuring that we are safe, we are secure. So in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we are really just ticking the box off on the bottommost layer and then ensuring mm -hmm. that we have everything kind of placed off it. 
um, that's really what I wanted to say, why this is happening. So from a consumer psychology perspective, uh, and now I'll come to the question you've asked, Paris, that how is this impacting uh, marketing? Because at the end of the day, uh, as marketers, you need to now align better to the changing and evolving uh, trends and behaviors that, behaviors that you're seeing, right? And I'll start off with the first one. Uh, because we spoke about the shift to digital, we have to talk about online, that the biggest change has been the pivot to online. Now, uh, there come some companies uh, which were not online, and for them, it was the biggest kind of a pivot that they have to make. But even for companies with an online presence, it called for strengthening and expansion of its digital footprint as the world swapped its physical with all virtual kind of things to do. Uh, so there was a spike in creation and updation of websites, there were creations, uh, creation of new social media campaigns and e-commerce. So all in all, the marketing mix evolved fast to incorporate digital channels. That was the first one. I think the second thing it led to was a focus on organic growth. Now, of the many things that COVID added to our plates, one was a tough task of meeting marketing objectives with shrinking resources, right? So uh, our budgets were frozen. We did not have budgets at all or whatever the case would have been for you. Paid marketing had to be replaced with a low or a no cost alternative while ensuring that your traffic or your leads or whatever your objectives were did not take a major hit. Now, this was a rope walk for many because it meant having the analytics in place. And I think linked to this is also the third point, which is having analytics. So uh, COVID and the situation and the behavioral change also told us that we needed to have our analytics up front and center because uh, we needed that to make right investment decisions. We took that uh, analytics as our uh, North Star in making and doubling down on channels that were working and pulling the plug on the ones that were not. So all in all, this all led to uh, two things, focus on organic growth and the analytic things and the mm -hmm. shift to analytics. Uh, another thing I, uh, I see that is increasing, especially in B2B SaaS or even B2C SaaS, is more on the product-led growth. And this really ties back to the self-service piece we talk about, uh, you know, where businesses had to tweak their user acquisition, conversion, retention strategy by having products at the helm of their marketing uh, funnel. So this strategy, which is termed as the product-led growth, uh, relies on something like a free trial or a freemium. A model that allows users to not only experience the product, but engage with it and purchase, which is ideally the end goal, without going through any sales or marketing middlemen. That is the uh, whole end game of how product-led growth works. And finally, I think uh, humanizing marketing um, has been or will be the key change that you see in the coming years, because let's be honest, we are all bombarded with ads everywhere we go. You know, as AI and um, machine learning or ML continues to evolve, we see all of this being deeply embedded in our flow of work and life. And we are almost developing this immunity to commercial messages, which is why to cut through the online chatter, we need to now uh, start adding humanness to our brand com and our mark com, uh, because that's the only way we can show empathy. And, you know, we've we all been talking of empathy in our business circles. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think it's also important in marketing because people need to work with people. You know, brands are definitely important. But at the end of the day, uh, we need to have the humanness intact. So brands essentially had to rebuild trust. They had to demonstrate empathy by prioritizing value addition or value-centric messaging. So this could be through free content, any kind of thought leadership content that you want to give out to your uh, consumers, freemium products. All of these um, will be always preferred to over in your face sales, which is something that uh, we were kind of doing prior to this economy. Is that last point that you mentioned connected to the 
the rise in the consumer behavior towards do-it-yourself. What I what I mean is is pro- is the move towards product-led growth connected to the rise in consumers wanting to do it themselves instead of have somebody sell it to them, basically. Uh, yes, in a way. So here's the thing, right? The more in- we are so um, we're living in an information economy, if I can call it so. Right. And in the information economy where information is available to anyone, everyone from wherever you are, wherever you are, ignorance is a choice. Right. Mm-hmm. So if I have all the information at my fingertips, if I have it available, I have the agency to exercise control over it. I think the next step is only that for me to feel empowered. I not only need the information, I not only need all of the value ads that come with it, but I also need to go through the complete cycle by myself. So I definitely mm-hmm. think there is a connect between the two. So more as this increases, you'll also see the rise of PLG also increase. Yeah. And another point that I find very interesting is this shift um, towards organic strategies, because practically speaking, paid budgets have shrunk and people just have to be more resourceful. They have to do more with less. So they, they're, uh, I guess CEOs or CMOs are challenging those marketing teams. Hey, we need to continue the same lead volumes. We need to keep the demand gen going, but you have to do it with less budget. Now, does that come with an also with an understanding and a willingness on the part of the marketer that this is going to take a little longer now if we're going to shift towards into things like content marketing? where I can't just immediately get in front of someone at the top of Google who is at the very bottom of the funnel, but I need to start educating and nurturing them. It's going to take longer. Do marketers, are marketers aware of that well enough in your opinion? Um, So I think uh, content marketing, and because you said organic is going to be uh, something uh, as a go-to going ahead in the future because I'm not just the shrinking resources, because also you'll see, and this has been my opinion, uh, that the traffic that comes from organic, the leads that you get from organic are more high intent and will lead to faster and more conversions than your paid marketing channels. Again, I'm not debating on mm-hmm. both, but I'm just saying that this is typically how the ratios would go. Uh, so in terms of marketing, uh, content marketing especially, I think, um, and I think this ties back to the point I told you about uh, humanizing marketing in general, where you will want to definitely spend time uh, on ensuring that this this content that you're putting out is actually adding value and you're just not doing it uh, to, you know, uh, putting keywords into your blog post or putting keywords on your web pages so that you rank on a certain Google engine, right? So mm-hmm. it's just going to be more than that. Uh, and uh, what I think Paris is also happening is uh, over the last year, especially uh, because content became that like the one differentiator between companies, uh, also because the brand loyalty started fading away and different things started fading away. I think there are new trends that we see in content marketing. So while it is more um, that's the cycle between in content marketing may be longish compared to mm-hmm. something else, I think the returns are solid and they will give you a better conversions at the end of it. Uh-huh. Right? So, so yeah. I, I do agree. Absolutely agree with you. Um, I, I think if you're a brand who's willing to invest in educating and nurturing a prospect with content, you have to have a little bit more patience. But the the brand bias that you're going to enjoy if you were the person who really cultivated that demand, it's, it is worth it because they will choose your brand when they, are, when they are in market, as opposed to just being there at the very end when they just see you in a paid search position and they don't even know who you are. They haven't, haven't come across your brand. And at that point, they're probably going to make a very, very uh, 
maybe just a price driven decision or they they're not going to they're not going to make a decision for all, for the same reasons as they would if oh this is the brand who actually educated me about this whole problem that I have at the start of this journey um so now let's one, sorry yeah, just one point ahead. there uh, sure. Paris. i think um, what as marketers uh, we should not forget or rather we should always have this high on our priority uh, which is the whole trust building and relationship building angle right and that's exactly what you're pointing out when you say that if you're being uh, if you're been providing content if you've been uh, showing me the right way to do something and you've been my go to person or go to agency for something that i want to do or i'm struggling to do naturally my trust and my uh, in your credibility in my eyes is only going to increase so when the timing is right maybe when the opportunity is there i am first going to think of you and which is also going to lead to the customer retention after i signed up with you right so as you said it's mm -hmm. not long, no longer just going to be a pricing war it's going to be yeah. more of a customer relationship and the trust uh, that yeah. you have taken the time to uh, you know put into something that will pay off later right right lifetime value lifetime and, value uh, absolutely yeah and so now let's get let's let's bring this back to to the covid situation do you think that this this last year of covid has influenced the types of content that is servicing for people whether that be in search results or in social media or in other places and which and if you believe that that is true which which types of content and what kind of trends are you seeing around this yeah yeah so many content pieces that have um, different kind of formats also that have just you know snuck up and are sticking around uh, but one thing i just wanted to call out and say is that even before the pandemic uh, you know the traditional media and the status of status of traditional media uh, which was more push based it was already dwindling and if anything at all what covid and the forced digitalization that happened because of it uh, really did was it just accelerated it and it really what we're talking about the content marketing piece it just you know came up front and center even more and became the cornerstone of inbound marketing because that is really what we're talking about when we speak of organic or whether we are speaking of high intent and pull based marketing that is really what we're talking about um so coming to the trends and some uh, some kind of content that i think has surfaced and will continue to do so or will probably gain more momentum in the coming months uh one and topmost i'm just going to go through a sequence okay this may not be in the order of priority okay. is live videos and uh, videos in general you know uh, some days i honestly feel like my uh, my my day has starting to feel like a is starting to feel like a showreel given the number of webinars and the lives i attend tell me and about thinking, it yeah <laughs> and the same is the case with relate. most of us today absolutely absolutely but at the same time um i think if i were to ask uh, almost everyone i think no one there's not a single person in the room that would say no i haven't uh, registered for a single webinar or i haven't accessed a live during the last one year i think mm -hmm. a part of that is uh, fomo which is the fear of missing out you don't want to be missing out on something that the world is doing uh, but the other part of this is the time availability you know uh, so earlier we were all going back and forth rushing to our office coming back from there trying to manage our home with our office and all of the things that happened around it now suddenly we have some time at hand and we know that we definitely need to keep upskilling and learning and video content just takes the cake when it comes to uh, upskilling because uh, one it is very easy to consume and uh, second it's passive nature which just allows you to you know play and you can sit back and watch and it just makes it our all time favorite content Yeah. Yeah. Th that's fascinating and it really gets it really gets back to human psychology which is the accessibility of certain formats. Given you may you may it may 
appear at first that if people have a lot more time that they might read a lot more, but in fact, they prefer to just listen more and watch more. And I think that also what COVID did was it accelerated the shift, which was already happening, the shift from people willing to read a long form blog post and preferring instead to jump into a 30 minute live webinar, or maybe to consume even a more snackable piece of video content where, um, you know, ironically, even though they have more time, they seem to have a shorter attention span during that time because I guess to connect to your DIY, they, they just say, look, I, I think now I know, I know what I need to get out of this. I don't want to sit through, I, I don't want to read 3000 words, or I might, I might not even want to sit through a one hour long webinar because I feel like I know what I need to get to. And I just need to know, do they have it? Do they not? Can they solve my problem? Can they not? It, it again, it connects with product led growth, the same thing. Would you prefer to just get your hands on the product and figure out if it has those one or two features that you really need? Or do you want to sit through an hour long demo with a salesperson trying to push all those features on you, 80% of which you don't need really? Uh, I think it's all connected and it, it is connected back to the type of content that people prefer to consume. And we've seen a big shift in our content marketing projects as well, where video is now just much more effective. And for the people, for the thought leaders who can produce content, it's a lot more, it's a lot easier for them to either switch on the recorder, switch on the camera, get in front of their iPhone and just start talking about what they know best about, as opposed to asking that, let's say product engineer, hey, I want you to write the 2000 word blog post once a month. And that's, that's never gonna get done. So I think um, not only is it more, it, it's more accessible and preferable by the consumer, but it's easier for thought leaders to produce that type of content and then to repurpose that into other formats for content marketing. 100%, 100%. As a matter of fact, you know, while you're saying um, how we prefer to uh, watch content and get the value that we want in just a short nugget versus just reading a long form content, uh, it also reminded me of something which I think is getting blurred as we speak, right? So we know there are digital natives and there are digital immigrants. So people that have been born and brought up in the digital age are the digital natives. And the ones who have been born before technology and have had to adopt technology, uh, maybe much later in their lives, they are the immigrants. But what mm -hmm. has happened is with technology became, becoming the ubiquitous single denominator of everything that we do, uh, somewhere that differentiation and those boundaries are getting blurred to an extent where no longer can you differentiate between a native and an immigrant by saying that he prefers that or she prefers that. It all just comes down mm -hmm. to what we prefer together uh, yeah. because how we are evolving is also a factor of how the technology is changing in accordance to that or rather it's having this change in accordance yeah. or whichever way we look at that. Yeah. I learned recently that the, I, I think this is leading us to, to the millennial word. Millennials now make up 60% of SaaS buyers, 60%. So I consider myself, uh, I'm, I'm a little older. I'm, I'm an immigrant. I, I do remember life before not only smartphones, but before the internet. Um, but anyway, let's not go there. Uh, <laughs> I, I am definitely an immigrant. But now we as the immigrants, and we might be in higher positions managerially, but we are in the minority when it comes to uh, the, the portion of SaaS buyers. And millennials do prefer to buy things in a more a collaborative way as well, which means that they might want to ask people to other people in their decision group that might influence them 
to read something, watch something, to weigh in and to educate themselves the way they have so that they can make more of a collaborative decision. And the, there's some interesting research around that too. And that's certainly not going to change because that 60% is not going anywhere but up until maybe the Gen Z guys get in there and also take their, their piece. Um, Absolutely. So I think that also just aligning, aligning content strategies with the way people will eventually make a purchase decision, which is now more and more collaborative, means that you have to supply those people with content. You have to supply more people with more content because there are more people involved in the eventual decision. Absolutely. And sorry, one more thing about the millennials. I'm sorry, uh, I don't want to yeah. go further in this direction, but uh, millennials also like user generated content, you know, and the piece that you said that how easy it is to really set up a camera and uh, have something recorded uh, mm -hmm. compared to, let's say, you, the working with an authority that had the necessary subject matter expertise. I think everything is just changing the dynamics of who controls the power of information and how it then gets disseminated to the world at large. Absolutely. Great. So now let's talk a little bit about your company, Upside LMS. And given everything that we've talked about, about the shift in consumer behavior and how that's impacted marketing and especially content marketing, let's bring this all back now to how that's impacting you and your role at Upside LMS. Can you share some insights on how you're using marketing in general and content marketing and other, other channels like paid and SEO to scale Upside LMS and especially during this time of COVID? Sure, sure. Uh, thank you for asking that. Uh, so I've been with this company for the last 10 years and I have literally grown and evolved as the company did too. So there have been many, many learnings along the way. Also, uh, because we're talking of COVID, I also have to say that um, being in the online learning industry, which is what uh, essentially Upside LMS is, the space that we work in, uh, we weren't that affected because of uh, being in the right place at the right time, right? Uh, but mm -hmm. what that also resulted in for us, there was this huge inflow of traffic. And while that looks great to look at on your graph and it looks like everything is going great, it also puts this new challenge of saving out the low intent and the high intent. And just there's a whole new dimension that you never thought about. Right. So last year has been a, a good learning. Um, I've literally been uh, tweaking things around uh, on the fly, seeing what works, what does not work, and then taking it from there. But if I have to just sum up and tell you things that we uh, definitely have put into practice over the last year, especially uh, and also in the years before, but especially in the last year. And just I'm going to build on the content piece that we are saying uh, we were speaking about earlier. So uh, last year, we uh, realized that there was this huge noise and there was a huge amount of, uh, you know, online clutter because we spoke about everyone moving to digital, everyone having their online presence and cutting through this became the number one challenge for us, especially. And so the one way we, we thought we could stand out of the crowd was by associating with a well-known industry leader, which is a leader in our industry, which is the e-learning industry. So by leveraging their star power, as I call it, or their personal brand equity, it became possible to lend instant credibility and grab the eyeballs, uh, be it the blog post you're doing or the podcast you're doing or the webinar. So that was one easy way to achieve what you're doing. Uh, related to this is the second thing, which is uh, doing a podcast is great. Doing videos uh, is great. But just working in silos where you're just working on videos or podcasts will not get you to scale as fast as you want to uh, because we have different consumer preferences. You know, just the way we have our own choices when it comes to food, uh, the clothes we wear, the people we date, we also have our own choices with regards to the content uh, channels that we frequent. So meeting your consumer where they are is as important as having 
uh, the star power or the different marketing muscles to produce good content. So it's um, just repurposing content is not enough. You also need to do it in different formats for different channels aligned to your buyer persona. So I think mm -hmm. that was something that worked well for us where we could have a different channel, only presence, uh, only channel presence across the board. Um, not to really mention this, but uh, goes without saying, is doubling down on SEO works very, very well. Uh, and as I mentioned, I've seen organic traffic give high intent leads, lead to more conversions. So we have been really focused on optimizing our web pages for the latest algorithms, doing keyword researches, competition mm -hmm. benchmarking, and then aligning our content strategy. Uh, that has been the bedrock to our marketing overall. Yeah. Uh, also, one interesting thing we did that I need to really talk about is influencer marketing and something I not tried earlier. Uh, but a quick backstory why we decided to do influencer marketing in a time when everything was in a flux. Uh, so we had planned a brand launch. So we had a new product that we had to launch. But unfortunately, because of COVID, uh, everything just went, you know, went for a toss. Uh, we had a physical event planned and that could not happen because it got canceled. So then we identified an influencer in our space who had a good following and good engagement on her LinkedIn channel. And long story short, in the three-month engagement that we had with her, where she uh, we associated with her, she would all she could you know talk about our products in a very soft selling way, not really hard selling or talking about us explicitly. Uh, we were able to create the much-needed brand visibility, especially for the new brand that we were launching. And just in those three months, we increased our website traffic significantly, and thereafter it was really just this whole mm -hmm. game of uh, nurturing those leads and ensuring that the traffic uh, had some stickiness to it. So yeah, mm -hmm. that, that really uh, was the crux of what we did. But one last thing I also need to say, and especially since we're talking of content so much, is um, I think we also need to talk of email marketing in conjunction with content marketing. Uh, listen, because uh, good content can get you the traffic, but it can't necessarily differentiate between high intent and low intent leads. So uh, we believe in using automation and we use lead nurturing uh, automation workflows, especially for the ones that, uh, you know, make it to a funnel through top of the funnel marketing. And this brings about, you know, focused approach, not just for marketing, but also for sales. When we pass on the SQLs to them, it really ensures that we're talking to the right people and the investment is really solid for all of us together. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I just wanted to point out something that I noticed when doing a little bit of research on you guys. And very impressive. You all rank number one on Google for the keyword LMS blogs. So it is not a, it's not a massively high volume, but that is a great, for me, that, that's great intent. And I think that, um, that that is a reflection of what you just talked about um, and, and the investments that you've made in both SEO and in content marketing. So um, yeah, congrats on that. And that that's probably a sign that you all, um, that you all are very focused on this right now and that it is thanks, paying thanks, off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, but uh, while we speak of SEO and we talk of organic, I think I also need to just say this. Um, it's not really a debate between uh, are you doing paid search or are you doing uh, just organic? Sometimes you just need to dial up on your, um, you know, paid search. You need to get onto uh, Google AdWords and PPC uh, mm -hmm. until and unless your SEO kicks in. So this is yeah. the learning that we also had before when I told you about the new product we launched and everything just went for a toss. Uh, we needed to have some kind of money put into the AdWords so that we had some ranking and mm -hmm. then eventually we just mm -hmm. built on our SEO and then we could ease out on the paid effort. So it, there has mm -hmm. to be a balance. You just can't say, you know, this doesn't work and this works or I will not put a penny into paid. I don't think Absolutely. that is a good strategy. Yeah. 
we we normally tell clients and prospects that PPC is your usually your zero to six month strategy to get out of the gate quickly. But your six to twelve month or your twelve and beyond twelve months and beyond strategy, it needs to be SEO and content. And, and that does mean that if you want if you want SEO and content to start kicking in in six months or in twelve, you need to start today, but don't have the expectation that you would have for PPC. PPC is going to buy you the time that you need to get you there. Um, but I I agree entirely with with what you just said. There there's you have to put each of those major channels in the in the perspective of the horizon with which they pay you back. Um, or SEO is not going to pay you back in the first three months, maybe not in the first six months. PPC should definitely pay you back in three months. But when you get out to 12 months or 18 or 24 months and you have been investing in SEO, we, we believe, I definitely believe that the, the payback and the return on investment over that entire horizon should be actually much larger. Because at some point with PPC, it will continue to get more competitive. The cost per clicks will rise and it's going to plateau. At some point, it will just plateau. And with content marketing, there isn't a natural plateau, actually. You really can, you know, the more you invest, you can keep going up and up. I've never really seen anybody plateauing with content marketing, not even the hub spots of the world. So um, what you said is spot on, the way you put that in, into perspective. And also just the number of, uh, you know, keywords, because we are speaking so much about SEO in particular, the number of keywords and what people are looking for, the long tail and the short tail, I think that changes every day. Uh, Google mm -hmm. algorithm changes every day. So you just can't, you know, it's not like one one day you sit and figure it out and do it. It's not like that. You need to mm -hmm. work along with the changing algorithms and ensure that um, you have everything done as a regular check-in to mm -hmm. ensure that you have the SEO running as a well-oiled machinery that you ideally wanted to. Yeah. Yeah, that hygiene, that hygiene is extremely important. And I think where that battleground is now mostly is on mobile and the mobile True. experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, so Pranjali, as, as a marketing expert, what would be your advice for businesses that are now moving to the digital space and also for the established ones? How can they differentiate and stay top of mind? Yeah, you know, okay. Uh, first of all, I don't think I'm a marketing expert. Uh, my LinkedIn title very clearly says I'm a lifelong learner, and that is what I am. Um, but here's what I do know some things that I've uh, learned from experience, from failing and doing mistakes is um, irrespective of the medium. So it's, it's not really about the physical or the online or the digital, which is the mix between the two. Shopping behaviors are always, always a means to some end. You know, oftentimes it's an emotional end. Uh, which means we don't buy a bed because we have to, we have a place in our bedroom to fill in, but it's the restful sleep that energizes us every day. That's what you pay for, right? So let's not get mm -hmm. caught up in the word digital or physical or how this differentiates really. Uh, with that, I'll come to the question that you asked, Paris, that uh, the companies that are just about starting off their journeys, what can they do? Uh, my two cents really will be to um, lay out the key marketing objectives. You know, and this could be as simple as getting the website UI right, or it could be as complex as just figuring out the whole marketing mix in, in a day, whatever it is, 
right? But the important part is to remember that these key marketing objectives, they are mapped to your short-term and your long-term goals, and they ideally stack up on each other. So what I mean by that is, uh, example, if I'm, a, if I'm a company that's newly starting in the online space, and I've identified my first objective as getting my website UI right, maybe my next objective should be having the SEO done, or maybe in conjunction to that and then have to go onto the social media and then build from there. So eventually you have to stack up on each other until you uh, you set up the entire ecosystem. So that's mm-hmm. that's what you can do for the new businesses. Uh, for the ones that are already in the game, you know, differentiating, especially when you're seemingly doing it all, you're also doing paid, you're also doing Google AdWords, you're also on LinkedIn or whatever else that you're doing. Uh, it is tricky to really ensure that uh, you are able to stick out from the crowd. Uh, but my advice, uh, to you and also to myself is to really hone into your analytics. And what I mean by this is threefold. One is to uh, really put your own marketing performance under a microscope. You know, everything that you're doing, every dollar spent, every channel that you have put in, uh, get into the details and specifics of it as much as you can. The second is to use a magnifying glass for your buyer data. So get into the buyer personas, figure out what is it that they like, what they don't like, get into the psychographics, the firmographics, anything and everything that you can put together for them. The third piece is equipping yourself with necessary competitor intel. So there are multiple things that you can do uh, to one, identify who your competition is and then to see what they are doing. Not necessarily to mirror them, but at least to get some kind of a benchmark into what is working. Because if you can learn from their mistakes, nothing like it. Um, And the most important thing to remember all through this is don't lose sight of your own business goals. Um, Because at the end of the day, if you make data your best friend, you will develop a better decision-making and a risk-taking muscle, which I'm sure will serve you and your business goals for times to come. Excellent answer. I love I love the reference to building muscle, the muscle. I, I really believe strongly that a lot of this is about forming habits and just doing something repetitively day in and day out, knowing that at the beginning, it's going to be uncomfortable. You will lack confidence. It's going to feel awkward. But over time, you are actually building a muscle the same way that you would train in the gym or, um, or train your mind. So it's the, same, it's the same in marketing, which is get into it. Don't overthink it. Get into it and start doing it. Do it every day. Make small, small improvements every day. And at some point, it's, it's, it will become second nature. And you will figure it all out. And always, as you said, follow the data. I mean, we are fortunate to have an enormous amount of data at our fingertips and pretty much instant feedback on almost anything that we do now in digital marketing. So um, I think there's a certain mindset where some people shy away from the data because maybe it's intimidating and the, the sheer volume of it. Um, but I think it's the same thing where even if, even if it's intimidating, just dive in headfirst and, and uh, start swimming, so to speak. Yeah. You know, there's this term in psychology, which is called the paradox of choice, um, which really just says that when uh, you have too many things to choose from, you kind of freeze. I mean, ideally, in a mm-hmm. situation, you should feel just empowered to make a choice between this and that. But it's just mm-hmm. the reverse, how our brain works. Right. So, uh, yes, a data is actually overpowering and intimidating to many people because you just don't know what to make of all this that has yeah. now come to you. Right. So I think the step yeah, number yeah. one will be to identify uh, what matters to you and then just hone in onto it. Yeah. I think it's why the best restaurants always have a one-page menu. Because, Perfect. That's yeah. my kind of a restaurant. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do a few things, do them really well, and and um, don't overwhelm me with um, with too many choices. If you want me Agreed. to order anytime soon. 
Uh, well, this has been fantastic, Pranjali. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that that you wished I would have asked you or that you'd like for our audience to know? You know what, Paris? I'm just curious to know how, um, as an owner of an agency, how things have changed for you. Uh, and in context of the discussion, what changes have you noticed and how maybe you have changed your approaches in the last one year? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, for, thank you for asking me that question. As a digital agency owner, um, well, the last, the last year has been more memorable than any of the 11 that, that came before it for us as an agency. It started out quite scary because marketing budgets seized up and froze not only in travel, hospitality, everywhere. And there was a lot of fear. And um, we took, we took a, a pretty big hit at the beginning. And then as the consumer, and I do think it was all led by consumer behavior, as consumer behavior finally really started to show itself in a different way, people started bringing back those budgets and they started doing different things. And it really benefited not only us, I think it benefited all digital agencies. And I think in the second half of last year and leading into the start of this year, there's never been a better time to be in the digital marketing agency space because people are really now changing their strategies in a major way and they need marketing agencies more than ever. And we've, uh, we've benefited from that. We've also made a very strategic decision to focus entirely on SaaS businesses and, and to get really, really good at understanding uh, the, the unique unit economics and marketing needs and conversion paths around SaaS businesses. And I think that also, in a way, that, that decision to niche down to SaaS coincided with the, uh, with the pandemic. And, and I think also SaaS businesses are just booming as people uh, more and more prefer just to pay for what they use and to pay over time and, and rent versus own. That trend has, has been developing for a while. And I think we, we were fortunate, I think, in terms of the timing. And, and we, we were able to experience some, some nice growth in this last year. Yeah. Well, that's great. And congratulations on the growth. Also, um, you know, to make the decision to hone into, let's say, just a SaaS also calls for some marketing acumen, which I'm sure you, have, you knew and you could have the foresight to, um, you know, decide that this is the right segment for us or not. So, yeah, kudos on that. Well done. Sure. I have one more question that I'm curious about, Pranjali, because you have so many facets of your life that you're juggling right now. What are some of the, what are some of the keys for you personally to maintain your work-life balance? Okay. Um, I have to, I have to say this. I don't think there is a work and a life balance. Um, it's, it's something that has been sold to us as a concept and we have bought into it without really understanding what it means. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, there's this Japanese philosophy of Ikigai. I don't know if you're aware of this, but essentially it means that there are different areas of a life. Uh, one is what do you like to do, what you're good at, uh, what the world needs, and will you get paid for it? Essentially, when they all intersect into a Venn diagram, it gives you this real small area. And that says that if that is where you are at, you found complete fulfillment with what you're doing, right? And now I'll come to the piece that you asked. So I'm essentially at the intersection of all those four areas. I'm doing what I love. Uh, this is what I'm good at. Um, I get paid for it. And I think the world needs it, right? So uh, mm -hmm. for me, I don't find it very difficult to balance the two because it kind of seamlessly meshes and mashes the ebb and flow of it. Um, mm -hmm. So honestly, I don't think I'm the right person to tell you how I manage it because for me, it just comes very naturally. 
There are days when I'm completely, uh, you know, I'm engrossed in a project and I'll be at it. Um, you also need a supportive family. I think that's the, that's a big one. If you ha don't have a supportive family, maybe that's when the work-life balance starts to pop its ugly head and say, you know, mm -hmm. like, you're not making time for this and you're not making time for that. But I'm blessed mm -hmm. with a wonderful family. So uh, that's my long answer to a rather short question. I, I love that. That's, that's great. Um, it's not necessarily that one has to come at the cost of another, but that if you're able to, to, to blend them, then, then you're doing, you're, you're doing the right thing. You've made the right decision about well, what to do with your life and how to, how to spend your career and the majority of your waking hours. And, um, I certainly can say I'm striving for that too. And, and on most days I feel like I've, I've got it. And, and some days are harder than others, but, um, I can't see myself doing anything else, certainly. I think that's that's the key, right? I think days are supposed to be um, different. Uh, it's said that you can't have light without the darkness. It's the same, yeah. right? So which is why. Yeah. Great. Pranjali, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for, for coming on. And I'm looking forward to keeping in touch. And, and uh, thanks for all that great, that great wisdom that you shared, uh, I think. I learned a ton today and, and I really appreciate you sharing that with all of us. The feelings mutual. Thank you so much for having me and have a great day ahead. Bye-bye. Thanks, Ranjali. Bye. Bye. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about SaaS growth marketing, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P, dot online. Have a great day.